0: Very clear to me when I was still a kid that the main reason for all the nasty garbage that we have to put up with in this embodied life what heavy breathing European intellectuals call the human condition The human condition has to do with us being only partially conscious even at our best, most glowing moments. That consciousness itself, in relationship to all the other vital energies that we embody, is like pond scum, it floats on the surface and claims to be the whole story. And the moment it claims to be the whole story, we are in deep trouble. Deep, deep trouble. Because any plan of salvation, and I don't mean just, you know, religious get right with God plans, I mean economics and education and science and love and you name it. Any plan of salvation that ignores the unconscious is doomed to failure. I don't care how well motivated it is. I don't care how well funded it is. I've been fooling around with profoundly well motivated and well funded efforts to make the world a better place my entire life. And all of those plans failed because the people engaged in them ignored the unconscious. They ignored their own unconscious and they ignored the unconscious of the people they were trying to influence. And from my point of view, it's like Thoreau says, Thoreau says, when you begin to understand the larger patterns of history, he's born before Carl Jung, so he doesn't use the word archetype, but clearly that's what he's talking about. Once you begin to get some sense of the repeating patterns of history, the news of the day becomes gossip, relatively unimportant as my frustrated colleague said back in the middle of the war in Southeast Asia, quoting Bob Dylan, you don't have to be a weatherman to know which way the wind blows. And here we are, all storm birds, literally and figuratively, of one kind and another. And the issue becomes... What happens when we die? What, what is that? What is that story? And there are all these religions who go, well, when you die, this happens. Um, blah, 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 blah. And it's one of the reasons I became a dream worker early on in my early 20s. And that doesn't even count the apprenticeship time before I worked up nerve enough to start asking for money. Uh, I've been doing this, poking around with the dreams we remember from sleep, which elides inevitably off into hallucinations and religious visions and all kinds of odd states of mind that come on us when we're awake. I've been doing this, the math is inescapable for more than 50 years. And out of that it becomes very clear to me that the most reasonable way, the most rational way to talk about death is to say, as virtually all the religions of the world say, when we die, we move into the land of the dreams and do not return. That is essentially what the First Nations of North America say. They say to die is to walk the path into the land of dreams and not return. Hamlet, when he's just miserable and wants to end it all and uh, take up arms against a sea of trouble and by opposing end them, right in the middle of that suicidal thought, it pops into his head, ah, but what dreams may come must give us pause man. Hamlet is a smart man. He is uh, an archetypal poster boy for being smart. (laughs) The Tibetan Buddhists are probably the most adamant about it all. The Tibetan Buddhists say, yeah, it's not a rumor, it's true. What happens when you die is that you pass into the dream world and do not return, which is one of the reasons why Tibetan Buddhism essentially absorbing the Bon shamanic tradition that preceded the conversion of the Buddhist aristocratic class from shamanism, every family had its own shaman, to Buddhism. They all understood that the way to prepare for death was to cultivate the skill of lucid dreaming, of recognizing while you're in the middle of the dream without waking up, damn, this is a dream. This is all nonsense. This is not physically real. And that from that understanding, they say if you cultivate that understanding when you are incarnated, and it's worth remembering that the carn in incarnation is the same carn as in chili con carne. It means to be made out of meat. As long as you're made out of meat... Recognizing that one is dreaming while the dream is going on is a preparation for dying and recognizing that the experience of death is like a dream. And for that reason, there is no reason to be afraid of the frightening things that appear to happen. And equally, there is no reason to be drawn and attracted and magnetized by the beautiful things that happen. And that if you can maintain this kind of equanimity, having trained it while you were alive, once you get it down, then you can die and go, oh, all these monsters are simply, as the Buddha says, reflections of my own disordered thought forms and then you can pass into the wonderful light and blah blah and realize the same thing. Oh, all these delicious experiences are simply reflections of my own disordered thought forms. Take a number. And then you can pass into nirvana. To use Western metaphors, you can dissolve the nub of your being that has survived separation from physical form And dissolve back into the infinite there are a lot of Buddhist scholars who would argue about using those English terms but from my point of view they are the clearest terms you can do it you can dissolve back into the all one the eternal now and be done with it and one of the great innovations of the Buddha who is a Hindu he's a serious practicing mystical Hindu And he's gone through the whole routine and learned to meditate and learned to live without eating and all this stuff there's a interesting tradition of Buddhist art in Southeast Asia that depicts Buddha in the midst of his ferocious Hindu phase where he's been fasting and disciplining his body and doing all that stuff and those sculptures look like the photographs of Auschwitz victims literally skin and bone that's it And eventually, in the middle of all that ferociousness, the goddess has reincarnated in the form of a a milkmaid solely for the purpose of this one moment where she walks down the road and there's Prince Siddhartha, all shriveled up and skinny and miserable. And she says, Oh, honey, have a drink. (laughs) And she offers him some milk. And at that moment, he accepts the gift and sees the the path sees the way out of all of this foolishness and the Tibetan Buddhists say the most effective path out of the foolishness is to become lucid to cultivate the practice of lucidity in the dream world when you're alive so that that training will serve you you will remember what that is when you die and Buddha has this very interesting evolution of the Hindu tradition that he is passionately a part of. He says, you know, all this Nirvana stuff... (laughs) is presented to us as the highest possible spiritual development but i'm here to say that that's not true that there is a higher form of spiritual development which has to do with doing all the work to enter nirvana and to stand on the threshold of dissolving back into the all one and to be moved by compassion for all the other folks who are still incarnated and suffering and to choose to reincarnate rather than to dissolve and get off the wheel. The current Dalai Lama well it's interesting what he says now. For a long time he claimed to have specific memories of having done that he what is it? Thirteen times I think. Have specific memories of being dead and getting up to the threshold of nirvana and going, Whoops, wait a minute this isn't, this isn't the highest spiritual goal. The highest spiritual goal is to reincarnate and to go back into, the, back into the soap opera and lead a life that will help others be relieved from misery. And those who do that are called bodhisattvas. And the bodhisattvas' pledge is to do that until all sentient beings are enlightened pretty pretty impressive pledge however you have to run that up against how the folks who have taken this pledge treat each other in the waking world and these guys it's mostly guys have a long history of assassinating each other and burning each other's monasteries down over arguments about what is a sentient being and what isn't. And the, 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 the classic poster argument is, are the wasps sentient beings? Do we, have we pledged to reincarnate until even the wasps are enlightened? And the the human chauvinists go, no, 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 no. The wasps are not enlightened beings. They're just sparks from the divine fire. Kill them every chance you get. <laughs> and the true mystics say, oh, wasps, wasps are easy. Of course we have to reincarnate until the wasps are enlightened. We have to reincarnate until the grass is enlightened. <laughs> and you're... Historically, often running on another cycle of pogroms and barn burnings. You know, it's like this wonderful namaste gesture where you put your palms together and touch your heart with your thumbs and bow and say namaste, which means the divine in me recognizes and honors and welcomes the divine in you. Pretty high level prayer practice. But, again, history demonstrates that any number of people who are skilled and practiced in this prayer, for whom it comes easily, for whom it is a habit, get into the position where in the middle of saying the prayer, they're surveying the person they're bowing to and seeing which rib to slip the knife under. Uh, They are in their own day recognized as suicidal terrorists motivated by the deepest religious passion so it becomes clear to me that every religious stance has to be able to withstand the criticism of intelligent thought And that you can't just take beautiful things out of their historical context and say, ooh, 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 they're so beautiful, I'm just going to devote my life to them. It's a great temptation, but it doesn't work. And one of the things I am actually rather proud of is that I'm part of this pragmatic American philosophical tradition. I think America has a great deal to offer to the world, and one of them is... If it doesn't work, polish it up and put it in a museum and look for what does. And I am actually proud of that. I I didn't invent it, but I am glad that I was born out of that tradition. And I was born out of that tradition way over to the left. I am what is known in the trade as a red diaper baby. My parents... Diapered me in the red flag rather than the white diaper, and we are like preachers' kids, PKs. We recognize each other in crowds and sidle up to each other and go Trotsky, and the answer is yeah, or Stalin, or you know Guevara, or uh, whoever the whoever the unquestionable shining hero is. There was a, well, she still is. At the time, she was a student of mine at Star King. Uh, A woman who went to work for Bill Gates right at the beginning. She was one of the first people hired by Gates. So as the company grew, she had this very privileged position. And at one point, she went into Bill's office, which was one of the perks that she had, and she said, I don't want to work here anymore. I want to go down... To Nicaragua and I want to computerize the revolution and I want you to pay me while I'm doing it and give me the equipment that I can pass out to the Sandinistas and Bill said mm, okay all right and so off she went and she got deeply involved in that project and of course the more deeply she got involved in the prospect in the prospect and the project The more the feet of clay became obvious until eventually she was moving further and further into the backlands and she ended up with the mosquito Indians as a witness to protect them because they were the subject of genocidal physical attacks by the Sandinistas. And she figured if a high profile Anglo was with them, their chances of survival would be increased and she hung out there and it was a minimalist life that she was leading and she finally decided that she couldn't afford to devote her whole minimalist life to simply being there and not having really intimate and satisfactory relationships with anybody so she decided to walk home and she turned around and headed north through the jungle and at one point toward evening, she came over a rise and saw a little traditional grass hut and heard the telltale thump, 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 thump of a Honda electric generator. And as the sun went down, she could see that these people in this little traditional grass hut were watching television from Managua. <laughs> and it broke her heart it was the end she collapsed on the ground and said mother take me now and she had a vision of the great mother in that moment the great mother appeared to her and said oh honey don't be upset what you're looking at this wasteland of broadcast material is all test patterns what's happening is the planet is being wired up for instantaneous communication and it doesn't matter what the material is that follows the first connections because it's all test patterns and you have played an instrumental part in extending the neural network of the entire planet stop being so hard on yourself And she wept, pulled herself together, went down to the little cottage and had dinner with the people, hitchhiked to the nearest airport and flew home again. It's an interesting story. She is now a Sufi teacher, and she founded a community and eventually the community grew into adolescence and (laughs) expelled her because of her extraordinarily powerful presence wasn't anything she did on purpose she was bigger psycho spiritually bigger than anybody else in the community and her presence made people nervous and so they threw her out and once again it broke her heart But once again, she understood that this was not a conscious betrayal. This was not them deciding to be mean to her. This was them being driven by unconscious patterns which they did not understand, which she had tried to teach them about, but had failed but she at least knew it herself, so she gathered herself together and moved out into the Arizona desert and is now a mystic healer in the middle of the desert. And some people find their way to her and some people don't. And the rumors are that she can cure without even touching people. She can cure physical ailments with her presence. Decades ago, I would have thought that was all nonsense. But I know enough now to know that it's possible to do that. And I know this particular person well enough to know that if anybody is going to evolve into that extraordinary level of consciousness, she is very likely to be one of the people who does it. Our real lives if indeed it is the case that when we die we simply exit into the realm of dreams that we can hardly remember then the the continuous and reliable piece of our lives is the the life that takes place in the unseen world and this world that we set so much store by that is so difficult is a training film and I believe at this point that what the training film teaches regardless of where you begin is that it is necessary to distinguish between very difficult problems which we have not yet figured out how to solve and genuine paradoxes which do not have a solution it's hard to make that distinction but that is in fact the litmus test of psychospiritual maturity is to recognize that those two things are not the same even though they feel the same at first encounter and to know enough about living in their presence to distinguish the conundrums which are really hard but which can be solved and the paradoxes which are really hard and cannot be solved They must be lived with. And one of the things, well, let me tell you two things about the dream world that are very relevant to this point. In the dream world, death is, it's not the only, but it is the single most frequent and reliable archetypal metaphor of profound psycho-spiritual growth and change that the unconscious has to offer. Anytime death flits through somebody's dream as a rumor or they are confronted with brutal lethal mayhem or they themselves are killed, the dreamer who dreams such a thing is pretty much guaranteed. Only The, the, the dreamer is the only one who can say for sure. But the evidence in my experience is that's an extremely reliable indicator that that dreamer is in the midst of a process of psychospiritual growth and change that is so profound that only the death of who I used to think I was or some aspect of who I I pretend to be was the only adequate metaphor to describe the depth of the process that I'm engaged in at that moment the other one is bridges it's very cheering to me that the view of the bridge is visible today in the waking world from this room. Because bridges in the dream world, even if they just show up as seemingly unimportant elements of the background, in my experience, are as reliable indicators of learning to live fully and completely and energetically in the inescapable face of unresolvable paradox as death is of profound psychospiritual growth and change. And... Two days ago, I heard a dream from a person I care a great deal about in which she is crossing a bridge. In fact, she's crossing a bridge over the Niagara River. And she looks down into the icy, tremendously fast current of that river. I don't know if any of you have ever seen it. It's an extraordinary river. Most rivers have moods. Most rivers are one way in one season, another way, another. Niagara is always cold and always crazy. It's the only mode it has. And she looks down and recognizes it and realizes that it is important to swim the river. Now, in waking life, that would be suicide. And in the dream, she has the thought, I could die. I could die doing that. But it is what I need to do. And I would offer you the thought that that is a lucid dream. Whether she says verbally to herself, this is a dream. Bridges are metaphors of living with irresolvable paradox. Death is the archetypal metaphor par excellence of profound growth and change. Here I am on a bridge contemplating my own death. I better go for it. Whether she thinks that consciously as the dream ego, some part of her knows that it's true. And she doesn't actually jump off the bridge into the water. It's not that detailed. Suddenly she finds herself in the water, and a whole bunch of other stuff happens. She finds a melting ice cave, as a matter of fact. And uh, there's a museum docent showing everybody the melting ice cave and the museum docent pauses as she and the other people who are swimming in the river she didn't even know they were there to begin with climb out in their bathing suits and she says in effect oh oh thank goodness you're here you know more about this than I do why don't you take over why don't you take over the docent of the of the melting ice cave and one of the things that turns out to be true about that is that it is a dream about global warming. This is a dream about the personal details of the dreamer's life aligning sufficiently with the collective problems that we have so that the dots connect themselves, and as she deals with her personal life, she has. A participatory role in the collective issue of global warming and the human elements that are feeding into it and not only was that a projection of mine when I heard the dream the dreamer herself confirmed it and a lot of the dream work had to do with exploring other details in the dream each of which fit into that larger picture Now, what I believe to be the case is that we are all dreaming stuff like that all the time, awake and asleep. The big deal is not to dream such dreams. The big deal is to have evolved consciousness to the point where we can remember dreaming such dreams. And as William Butler Yeats says, In dreams begins responsibility. I mean, that's wonderful news for people to evolve their consciousness to the point where they can remember dreams of this kind and understand, oh, shit, this isn't just a dream about my own anxieties and miseries. This is a dream about the anxieties and miseries of the entire planet. And in the dream, I'm being asked to play a role in it. And that means in my experience that one who remembers a dream of that kind is obligated to carry him herself in the world, knowing that and knowing that how we move in the world impacts these large collective situations, even though the rationalist materialist worldview says no, 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 that can't be true. The life of an individual can't have any kind of impact. The problems of scale are too great. No individual life, no matter how well lived, can impact on global warming. We have to get industry to change in order to have any impact on that. My experience is that's not necessarily true. It's not a bad thing to try and do to get industry to change its role in that. But it's not the only way it happens. When I was much younger, when I was in my 20s, I believed that people who retired from the struggle, metaphorically speaking, to be mountain hermits, my my particular focus at that point was on Albert Schweitzer. And, you know, he's a wonderful old man, plays the organ really well. And my thought was, how much better off would the world be if Albert Schweitzer hadn't disappeared into Africa and was still being Albert Schweitzer in the belly of the beast, in the middle of intellectual Europe, speaking out as only he could. And what I now believe is that that's a good idea that's definitely worth doing but it's not the only way to impact on these larger issues because these larger issues are born in and ultimately resolved in the unseen world so let me let me conclude and move into a more dialogic mode with another sort of anecdote there is certainly enough Gray and white hair in this room for my pop culture references to be meaningful. Uh, it's driving me crazy these days when I talk to younger audiences, and they go, "Richard Nixon, Who? Who was Richard Nixon?" And I go, "The president? remember?" and they go, "Oh, I was absent that day." you know I don't, I don't care about Richard Nixon. Um, I have a number of very dear friends. Many of them are computer people, programmers and architecture designers and whatnot, who have retired, and many of them have gone into nature, up into the Sierra is a favorite migrations point for them, and, you know, buy their own apple farm or, you know, grow dope hydroponically or something. Uh, hydroponically so it can't be seen from the air. <laughs> and, And they are crazed conspiratorial theorists. Now these are people I care about. So in order to stay in meaningful contact with them I have to put up with their crazy conspiratorial rants. But I have very deep sympathy for them. They are talking about patterns which we all recognize. Repeating patterns of nastiness in the world. And their problem is, from my point of view, it's all projection, is that they would prefer to believe that those patterns, because they're so clear, are the result of vast conspiracies of extremely intelligent and powerful men than recognize that they are unconscious patterns from the collective unconscious that we all participate in. And that for that reason, the only place they're going to change is as we change our relationship to the collective unconscious ourselves, which is present in every moment of our lives. It's easier to see in the the patterns of remembered dreams. But if you're not in the habit of seeing them in the pattern of remembered dreams, they show up as patterns in history and contemporary events. And crazed conspiratorial theorizing is an intelligent response to the inescapable patterns and an unwillingness to entertain the thought that these patterns are not the result of conscious behavior see I do not personally believe that the captains of industry and the leaders of government and religion and whatnot get together on scrambled conference calls every couple of weeks to congratulate each other on the success of their plans to destroy the planet's ability to support mammalian life. I don't think they're doing that. But from my point of view, they might as well be doing that because that is what's going on. Business as usual creates these patterns and unless we are willing to recognize that these patterns originate in the psyche we are left only with the possibility of crazy conspiratorial theorizing five minutes minutes. well thank you let's that was my last anecdote so we have five minutes for other kinds of conversation i will be coming back next week so we can have a more extended conversation then but what any questions or yes in back there oh hold on wait for the microphone yeah
1: what is your take on whether wasps have
0: consciousness sure i you know i'll tell you how crazy i am i think the raindrops have consciousness and that the uh, the key piece of understanding all of this is understanding projection it is an unconscious process we do not do it on purpose but we do it automatically and when the buddhists say the waking seemingly material world is a dream The strongest piece of experiential, experimentally testable evidence that that is true is that our waking experience is just as much a tissue of our projections as our experience in the dream world is. In the dream world, we experience the dream as though there were a me and then everything else in the dream were not me. But we know, thanks to the work of people like Fritz Perls, that everything in the dream is not the only thing that's going on. But one of the things that's always going on is that everything in the dream is a symbolic reflection for which read unconscious projection of aspects of the dreamer's own being and you know what the same thing is true in waking life this moment this seemingly wide awake physical moment is just as much a tissue of projection as the dreams that we did or did not remember this morning only in the waking world we actually think we are dealing with not me but for instance one of the profound truths is that the institutional patterns of human oppression, culturism and languageism, and sexism and racism and particularly classism, my, my red diaper is showing here, are reflections, projections of our own internal relationships with parts of ourselves that we have not allowed ourselves to embrace. We've not allowed ourselves to go, yeah, embarrassing though it is, that's me. i got to deal with this character because he knows where I live. (laughs) In fact, he's living in the basement right now and I didn't know it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. You uh, describe the uh, Tibetan Buddhist understanding that uh, upon death one dissolves into the infinite. If one has done the work. Yes. But there is also the return. Yeah. And I just wonder if you find evidence uh, oh. in dreams of this reincarnational uh, aspect. I, I had a secret hope that we wouldn't get to that until next week. Uh, In the moments that are remaining. It is so hard to find language for this. I am convinced by my own experience that what. The astrophysicists on the one hand and the particle physicists on the other hand are both saying. Is that this seemingly unquestionable experience of past present and future is not the whole story that the whole story has to do with the eternal now so if the eternal now is in fact the place where all our lives are really led the problem with reincarnation is the re because it buys into the whole past present and future deal You know, I am a Unitarian Universalist. I'm an ordained Unitarian Universalist minister, but I am also a convinced Trinitarian fairly rare breed actually but I'm convinced that the appearance of this archetypal notion that the divine come, the divine is one but it comes in three parts which is not the exclusive property of Christianity if it were the exclusive property of Christianity you could go yeah there's a lot of idiosyncratic craziness in that tradition but this is not idiosyncratic craziness this is everywhere and I think it is a symbolic way of acknowledging that our experience of the divine is like all our experience. It is three-part. We have memories of the past, we have experiences of the present, and we have anticipations of the future. And it is the unity of all of that that is the divine one. Whether it's Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, or Maiden, Matron, and Crone, or I mean, a, I forget the, the list of names, but this idea that there is one God that, for not very clear reasons, manifests as three is archetypal. It shows up in virtually every religious and spiritual tradition. And I think it's because all us humans have this experience of our lives that looks like the arrow of time but that when it is examined more carefully particularly when it is examined by increasing ability to remember what we are actually dreaming then that dissolves and we are left with an experience of our whole lives being simultaneously present in the moment of the dream and Ancestors that we never met, being simultaneously present in that as well. So my only argument with reincarnation is is the re part. Uh, I think we all live in the eternal now, and therefore it is to be expected that aspects of what appear to be personality that appear to dissolve at the death of individuals show up in other individuals regularly and reliably. Uh, Little, Little Buddha was a terrible film. Poor Keanu. He did his best, but it was a terrible film. But one of the things that actually makes it worth looking at is that they hired a bunch of Tibetan Buddhist monks to play themselves. And one of the key pieces of that film is that the Tibetan Buddhist monks go on the search for the reincarnated Toku. And they discover that the Toku has reincarnated simultaneously in four different children. And we are then privileged to witness their discussion about how they're going to report the search for the reincarnation. And the one thing they can agree on is that the Tulku reincarnating as a girl, the world is not ready for. So they acknowledge that she is a genuine reincarnation of the Tulku, but they say, I'm sorry, not this time. And they're left to decide amongst the three little boys. And that alone makes it a film worth watching. That alone makes it worth going. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, well.
1: Yes, um, Hindus and Buddhists uh, talk about uh, the current world as the age of Kali. Yeah, and the Kali Yuga. The Kali Yuga, and uh, I don't know how you feel about that, but I would ask, given all the turmoil that seems to be going on and the, the state that it reflects, so yeah. the unconscious, yeah. you know, um, collective unconscious. Uh, Do you have any advice for people who would like to have a positive uh, positive action? great question.
0: (sighs) We, We need to do the work to get consciously to an understanding that the deepest knowledge is paradoxical. That it's not a problem to be solved that we just haven't figured out yet. That it is a paradox that must be lived with. And living with it seems to me to be, consist of remaining as fully and creatively and expressively alive as possible, open minded and open hearted and able to love and be loved, even when the Unresolvable paradox is inescapably in our faces. And you raise it in terms of Kali. I have a great taste for Kali. I think she's a marvelous archetypal figure. Now, I'm the only child of a single mother, so it makes it much easier for me to see the divine in the form of an emotionally volatile woman than a mean, withdrawn, judgmental old man. I find the volatile woman much more attractive. And she is... One of her closest sisters is Baba Yaga. And Baba Yaga is a horrible, frightening old hag. But she also has moments of odd kindness to people who are sincere and open-hearted. That appears to be her only criterion. If you're sincere and open-hearted, she will give you a hand. And if you're overflowing with bullshit, she'll crush you like an insect in her pestle, her mortar and pestle that she carries around particularly for grinding up idiots (laughs) Uh, and it is institutional sexism that paints these immensely powerful feminine divine figures as witches and monsters in answer to your very real question the very real answer that comes up in me is learn to love them needs to be loved and she isn't getting much these days and not too surprisingly it pisses her off and so anyone who's willing to sort of sidle up to her and say gee ma uh, I'm sorry you're in such a bad mood Uh, what can I do how can I serve you and that's a beginning that And so few people are actually doing that. I mean, even the professional institutional worshippers of Kali tend to be murderers. The word thug comes into our language because there was a resurgence of Kali worship toward the end of the colonial British colonial occupation of India, and Mother Kali appeared to the to her devotees saying, I'm tired of drinking the blood only of little brown people. Bring me some nice, fresh, white people's blood to drink. And they did. And the name of the practice was Tuggy, and it got translated into the British press as Thug, and that word has come down to us with that meaning. It's worth remembering that the original Togi were simply the religious terrorists of their age. They were operating off what is undeniably divine inspiration, but it's divine inspiration filtered through unconscious projection. Just because it's divine inspiration doesn't mean that we are picking it up appropriately. Even if we're picking it up through unusual means like telepathy and uh, profound empathy and stuff like that, all of which are real. I didn't think they were real to begin with, but I know they're real now.
1: Jeremy, I think we have to quit now. Yes, yes indeed. I know there are a lot more questions, so yeah. if you have well, more questions for Jeremy, thank you. Thank you. Yep,
0: yep, yep. Um, this is a moment to say I'm going to be picking up this stuff